0: Live. I'm Tom Barberley and this is being recorded live on Talkshoe April seventeenth, two thousand and ten. Biota Live is a continuation of the Biota Podcasts. For more information on the Biota podcasts, check out B I O T A dot slash podcast. And the next podcast will be recorded May first. I'm currently recording at 3 p.m. Pacific, I'll probably beyond three p.m. Pacific. And uh, the topic is yet to be decided. However, I wanted to cover handheld devices and artificial life, and I think that'll probably be the topic for May first. But as these things tend to happen with Biota Live, it tends to be relatively fluid, and sometimes uh, topics change at relatively short notice. But the place to find uh, topic changes and other discussion associated with the Biota community is the Biota mailing list. And if you go to the Biota site, biota.org, and click on the list link you will be able to subscribe to the biota conversations mailing list and that's where a lot of the discussion is generated from this podcast in addition there is also a biota facebook group i believe there's a fan page as well or there are actually two pages but the uh, biota community on facebook is the place where a lot of the active discussion takes place So if you're on Facebook and you listen to this podcast and you'd like to communicate with a number of the previous participants in the podcast and a number of interested listeners that always have uh, ideas and questions and commentary associated with the various lives, the live community or it's probably the biota.org community on Facebook is the place to go for that as well. So I only have a couple of bits of news and notes and they both relate to talks that I will be giving. I will be talking... At Intel on Tuesday, July 13th, that's Intel in the Bay Area, uh, Santa Clara, I believe, so the main Intel HQ in Santa Clara, on uh, Tuesday, July 13th at 10.30am, it is a a work day, so uh, if you work at one of the uh, many interests in the Bay Area and you can get the time to come and see me talk at Intel, please consider doing so. I think there are probably going to be a limited number of seats available. So if you are interested in that talk, please get in contact with me early and I'll put you in contact with Justin Landon at Intel, who's uh, the manager organising the talk. And also, I will be talking at SRA International the following day, Wednesday, July 14th at 7 p.m., And, uh, well, I should have announced the topic for the Intel Talk. The Intel Talk will be on lesser understood parts of Noble Ape, which will include the weather simulation, the cognitive simulation, Ape Script, Noble Warfare, and a basic history. I just see Liz One calling in. I'll just bring her in on the audio. Hello, Liz. So uh, my second uh, piece of news is that I'll be talking at SR at Stanford Wednesday, July 14th at 7 p.m. And the topic will be artificial life, bringing the community together. And my understanding is probably there'll be a number of folk in the audience who won't have had the opportunity to make the Intel Talk the day previously, so I don't mind doing the Intel Talk or at least a condensed version of the Intel Talk, again, for folks in the audience taking questions. But these two talks will be the first time that I've talked on artificial life in the past decade and really the first time I've talked in public for at least the past seven years, so a wonderful opportunity to talk. My understanding is that the SRI one will be videotaped and will probably reach its way online somehow, and the Intel one I hope to record the audio of, and it may be videotaped as well, and similarly it may appear online. Liz, it's wonderful to have you on Bios Alive once again. You currently have a book project. Would you like to tell the, the Bios Alive listening audience about the book project and how they can get in contact with you about it?
1: Sure. The, the title of the book is Origins of Design, um, a fresh interdisciplinary look at how complexity emerges in complex systems, especially life, rather lengthy title, which will be shortened to probably Origins of Design, once everybody has an idea of what the book is about. And we have approached Springer first and foremost, and we hope to publish the book through Springer. And we have currently um, about 47 authors, when we were aiming for 40. So we're actually over our quota, which is fine, because some people will kind of drop off along the way, most likely. Um, But we've got a great selection of all different Essays approaching different issues in design. So these are, you know, design issues in nanotechnology, design issues in sociological models, design issues in artificial life models. So we have a couple of submissions from artificial life, uh, from the artificial life community, which is great. And um, we are hoping to find out from Springer soon whether or not that project will be formally accepted. And if they pass on it, we have a few other publishers in mind lined up to go with. Um, But, yeah, it's definitely looking up. It's definitely coming together. And we hope it probably won't be out, of course, until late 2011, if not um, 2012. But it's coming together.
0: And in terms of the various disciplines, I remember when I spoke to you a while back, it seemed to be mainly kind of chemists and biochemists. What what kind of disciplines have you gathered together in the 47 so far?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. It is definitely a lot of people working in various subdisciplines of biology, and that's mainly because of the, the two co-editors I'm working with, Dick Gordon and Joseph Sekbach, um, in radiology, uh, embryology, and different areas of biology, just working with, within their networks and sort of conferences they've been to and people they know, A lot of the submissions are from some subdiscipline in the natural sciences. But we have, um, I believe, just one from sociology, at least four or five from philosophers of science, including myself and some of my uh, colleagues from the University of South Carolina. So philosophers of science were looking at different um, design issues, for instance, the fine-tuning argument in physics. Um, and another one addressing the design issues in nanotechnology, building new molecules from the ground up. And let me see. Don't think we have any coming from mathematicians. So mostly, you know, various subdisciplines of the natural sciences and the social sciences. I think pretty much covers it.
0: And in terms of Dick's previous publication, in fact, both Dick and Joseph Seckbuck's previous publication. Um, divine Action and Natural Selection. Has Dick and Joseph, have they gathered together some of the more controversial folk associated with that? Will there be any creationist authors or anything like that? Is, it, is there any element of religion in this question or is it a, a, a purely a, a group of, I don't necessarily want to say scientists, but not part of the controversial few that, uh, that Dick was able to amass with the Divine Action Natural Selection book?
1: Yes, that's right. It's by and large a different group. And so even people who wrote for Divine Action and Natural Selection and did explicitly address the intelligent design creation evolution debate, those people who are writing for the newer uh, Origins of Design book are writing on a different topic. So they're addressing different design issues in um, biology. I think it's just that word design, understandably, that throws people off. And of course, there were some questions of is this book addressing intelligent design? Is that what you mean by design? So we had to make it explicit that we're looking at all different design issues. Um, you know, for example, just the idea that uh, the, the the complex relationship between genotype and phenotype seems, you know, as if there's some sort of um, program or plan in it and, and how can that be? According to evolution, there cannot be any sort of Plan. there can't be any sort of hand of God working along the way. Okay, so then what are some other possible um, theories? So even people who did address that question explicitly in their their former book are taking um, up a new topic in the newer book. But we've also attracted a whole host of new authors from other areas that did not write for the first book. So we really wanted to be a book with a different focus. Um, I think there are maybe one or two authors that did stick to the traditional intelligent design slash creation topic and write their essay around that topic. And that's fine because that's what the word design means to some people. But out of, I'd say, 47 authors, I think maybe two or three papers are addressing design as in intelligent design. So it's a small percentage.
0: And like the Divine Action Natural Selection book, will there be dialogue between the various authors as well, or is it just going to be straight chapters?
1: No, there will be dialogue. That's definitely planned. And uh, I think that's what made Divine Action and Natural Selection so attractive. As you know, I just reviewed that book, and that's what made it such an enjoyable read and really an exciting read, where, um, you know, as you're reading these very controversial essays, it's like you want to raise your hand and say, well, wait a minute, what about this? And reading the (laughs) dialogue, you know, somebody has most likely addressed that topic and then the author has responded to it. So it's a really nice format. And um, Dick especially, Dick Gordon, insisted that we do the dialogue because we we want to set a forum for open discussion. That's the model that we're going for. And so this is the the purpose of securing for ourselves um, four sessions at the Ishkabibble conference in July of 2011, that acronym standing for the International Society for the History, Social Studies, and Philosophy of Biology. So we have, I think, two to four sessions promised to us so that these, say, 40 or so authors, whomever of them can get themselves to Utah in July of 2011, and we'll have lots of back-and-forth dialogue in person, and I imagine those will be, um, we'll have transcriptions of the dialogue, but a lot of the dialogue for Divine Action and Natural Selection happened over email, and so that will be fair game, too. For people who can't make the trip to the conference, they'll be able to participate as dialoguers, and that will all be included in the, the final product.
0: Yes, I mean, certainly my experience with Divine Action Natural Selection, the sections that were really fun were the dialogue sections. I mean, although the writing was wonderful, the the back and forth associated with dialoguing with Dick Gordon and also a creationist, uh, Baumgarten. I can't remember. John Baumgarten, perhaps? was some of the the best bits of my um, interaction with the book, I think, in particular, John uh, Baumgarten was someone who is a theoretical physicist and actually has worked in applied nuclear physics and various other areas, so, his reasoning in, in terms of the the minutia of the arguments were was an interesting an interesting section of dialogue so, I would encourage folk uh, who haven 't yet seen divine action natural selection it 's now available electronically I believe also it 's available via various second hand bookstores and even new on Amazon uh, but the dialoguing sections were uh, particularly interesting, and I think really over and above the chapters themselves really kind of made the book in a coherent sense that you could actually bring together these people that had diametrically opposed views and actually get something interesting out of that. And I think design in particular has become quite a loaded uh, word. I mean, my interest in writing for, um, for the book that you proposed is really to give some definition and some linking and understanding that the term design, like so many other terms, hasn't necessarily being grabbed by intelligent design and, and turned in a, a particular direction. You can look at quite uncontroversial parts of nature and see elements of design, but it's a different kind of design than the traditional kind of engineering design. It may exist in economics or architecture or a wide variety of other areas. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to participating in the dialogue, if, if, if I'm accepted, um, with a group of other folk. And I think particularly the the potential for folks in biology and biochemistry. I'm not sure the the folks in the artificial life community have uh, accepted or have written submissions already, Uh, but I think the more... If Divine Action Natural Selection brought people of different belief systems together, the idea of this text bringing together people from a number of different intellectual disciplines and having dialogue, I think that might be uh, equally interesting. So I'm really looking forward to... uh, to what comes out of this and I think this is part of a broader series that Dick Gordon is doing in the origins of and I think we've both talked about this in the past the origins of perception I'm not sure where that will fit in the origins of series but I think that's probably maybe two or three after origin of life origin of design origin of perception fit somewhere in there and I think that would be an interesting book from A wide variety of perspectives. The artificial life community obviously has a number of different views about um, the emergence of perception, the origin of perception specifically. So I'm not sure when that will come in the uh, uh, Gordon-Seckbach publishing cycle, but it's one that I'm looking forward to in the future. For folks listening to you, you're you're currently somewhere in, in Colorado,
1: Yes, I am. I'm in Estes Park, as a matter of fact, looking at the mountains.
0: <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. Well, there's a legacy of folks calling into Bios Alive with wonderful views that they're looking over, so my hope is that we'll uh, inspire you for the for the conversation today, which ironically is around publishing as well. Mm-hmm. To get a little bit deeper, I mean, we talk about publishing, we talk about books, we talk about these kind of ideas But for you personally, what do you see as the benefits of kind of traditional on-paper publishing for a community like the Artificial Life community? Mm -hmm.
1: Versus um, the alternative routes of publishing
0: that we've talked about? Well, there seem to be so many different media types. That's a very good point. That's a very good clarification. There seem to be many different alternative media types, which are now increasingly taking over aspects of what traditional publishing would have done previously particularly with regards to uh, certain aspects of academia and tutorial aspects, but more importantly, the kind of inspirational and motivational aspects uh, that a lot of this goes out to, um, not just within the artificial life community, but people that are artificial life interested. So, I mean, traditionally publishing paper, physical books, had the ability of being found in academic remainders, libraries, these kind of things to inspire folk and also obviously actively used within the community. But now there seem to be a wide variety of media that are applicable and the the argument is always made that now we live in an internet age where students are no longer consuming the kinds of books that they may have consumed 10, 15, 20 years ago when the artificial life community was kind of emerging. So, is there still benefit in in the printed word? And here again, you, you're right. It's not. It's, it's academics. It's it's students. It's people that are in no way connected with the artificial life community, just stumbling upon these works. What do you see the benefit of traditional printed paper works as being?
1: I see. Okay, and I think it might be a disciplinary question because it's true that. College students today, you know, as you know, in, in just the past few years, I've taught at three different major universities, and I think it's true across the board that students now in writing research papers, they want to go to Wikipedia, they want to go to online blogs, they want to go to uh, Professor So-and-So's page on such-and-such. They want to kind of do quick research online and get what they need enough to write the paper, or you know, finish the homework assignment. But um, in my particular discipline in philosophy, I think it is a little bit different in that philosophy students, for whatever reason, uh, maybe just naturally, they uh, are, you know, more apt to pick up a book and read, and maybe that's why we go into philosophy in the first place. But it's not unusual for philosophy students to be accustomed to buying books. You know, they'll actually – go to the used bookstore and buy a bunch of books for their course and read them. And that's that's pretty much the tradition and I think that philosophy students are still okay with that. So as far as getting people in my particular discipline in philosophy interested in artificial life, I think the book route is a really good way to go. So the of course Margaret Bowden's book, The Philosophy of Artificial Life, had an enormous impact on philosophers and people in related disciplines because it's a nice book with well-written essays, uh, you know, a manageable number, a manageable price. And I I imagine that book did very well because it's just kind of, you know, here's a lot of the philosophical issues and insights in artificial life in one book. You know, I think it's an incredible product for that reason. As far as other disciplines, I don't know. Um, You know, I'm, I'm not sure. Maybe there are there are online publications or um, websites that would give enough information to somebody wanting to learn a little bit about artificial life. So maybe it depends on, you know, the, the audience, the readership, where they're coming from and what they're looking for. Um, So I I don't know.
0: Certainly Margaret A. Bowden's book is one of the books that I would consider part of that late eighties, early nineties. I used to, I used to have, um, Memorized. I want to say it's ninety three, ninety four 94, um, for Margaret A. Bowden's philosophy of artificial life. And in, in terms of its time, it mm-hmm. gave a really good surveying. There were a number of other books written around that time, uh, Stephen Levy's book, uh, and a, a couple of other surveying books which weren't philosophy-oriented specifically. They were more oriented with the technology and the vision of the various developers. So, but they were all of that time. And the problem yeah. currently is that nothing has tracked what has gone on since then. And certainly um, Steve Grand has written a couple of books which have been within the bounds of a specific project-oriented book for a popular audience. But in terms of the general surveying of the artificial life community, the closest uh, that I can think of is Maciej Komanszynski's uh, and Adaminski's. Artificial Life Applications and Software, which is now in its second um, second revision. And that offers, uh, very similar to Margaret A. Bowden's book, but not specifically relating to philosophy, kind of vignettes of various projects. It's an interesting book for people who are already relatively savvy with artificial life concepts, coming to it and just as a kind of surveying of, of a dozen or so projects. And it also covers aspects of artificial life art various aspects of robotic engineering, and obviously the um, intelligent agent software uh, packages as well. The first Mm -hmm. version contained uh, some of Bruce Damer's work and Jeffrey Ventrella's work. Jeffrey Ventrella's chapter in particular, I think, is a a standout for me. Also, uh, John McCormack's work and uh, a couple of others uh, who've appeared on, on previous Bios Live's. The reprint uh, removed, I think, all of those, maybe uh, John McCormack's stuff is still in there, uh, put in John Klein's and maybe one other other paper as well. But as that goes, that doesn't really... It could give someone inspiration, but the problem, it's a Springer title, and as you may have followed the pricing of Springer, it's kind of moved outside the price range of even picking up in an academic remainders kind of context. So the... The beauty of the early series of artificial life books from the late 80s, early 90s was the price, the um, the vast number that were published, which kind of go almost hand in hand, and also their ability to inspire people internationally. And really, if you look at the artificial life community from their mid-30s down, uh, those folk really were inspired by those texts. Yeah. the problem currently is that the, those kind of books don't exist. You have the Artificial Life Journal. Uh, you and I had the opportunity of talking to Mark Bodeau recently, and he raised a couple of interesting issues associated with publishing. So th- I guess the current problems associated with paper publishing rely uh, well relate specifically to both the cost of it and also the ever-decreasing market, the movement into electronic publishing, but also kind of shifts um, in terms of of the publisher's experience themselves. And from an author's experience, and I can only speak from my experience, you also see this kind of law of diminishing returns occurring in in publishing currently in terms of the cost of the books. Books are just becoming more expensive through traditional publishing, at least. And also, which in turn affects the ability for publicity copies or review copies to be sent out, But also through the consolidation of publishers, which, particularly in the kind of artificial life and surrounding fields, has been pretty chronic over recent years. What you have is these kind of super publishers that literally publish 120, 200 different scientific or related titles in even a given quarter, and all of these publications have equal weighting, so it's impossible for the novelty or interest or speciality associated with artificial life publication specifically to really merit um, you know the kind of the kind of feedback that got for example Margaret A. Bowden's work out and, and so well surveyed. In terms of the problem with modern publishers, can you, have, have I touched all the possible bases? Can you think of any others? Do you want to talk associated to, uh, on the, the topic of modern publishing?
1: I don't know about that in particular. One thought could, that comes to mind, though, in terms of pricing, um, what I did a lot of when I was in graduate school was refer to the conference proceedings, which I was happy to see. In University of South Carolina, generally speaking, um, it doesn't have anyone working specifically on artificial life. I'm sure people are, you know, aware of it. But as far as in the philosophy department, it was really pretty an obscure topic. But nevertheless, our library had the, you know, whole series of the European proceedings and the proceedings from the American conferences. So that's a great um, resource, too, because I know I – th- I think the proceedings, they tend to be pretty – large volumes and I imagine they are pretty expensive if you buy them on Amazon but all of them are available in university libraries so that's one option that you know as far as students getting access to these things uh, they're free in the library so that's nice you know as far as the publishing side of it I don't really know I mean in philosophy it's a given that if you publish a book you're not going to make any money off it it's really a given. Uh, even even the textbooks, uh, you're not going to make money off it. So, I don't know. I don't think of it as a, a money-making um, scheme at all in the first place. I guess the concern... Certainly. Is- I,
0: I, I, that, wasn't, that wasn't my point yeah. specifically. My point is basically That's- that publishers themselves right. are increasingly the only way that they can maintain margins is firstly by these, these consolidations which I means see. that you get limited contact. And in my experiences, both with uh, Divine Action and Natural Selection and also Nature-inspired Informatics recently, there were half a dozen... I mean, to give some background, which will filter into the conversation um, mm-hmm. as, as we continue, both my parents are authors. Um, my father is uh, for exclusively an academic author. He's a sociologist, political scientist, published in economics as well. So he, growing up, I saw his experience with academic publishing. My mother has also published academically, uh, but she's also written fiction as well and some, some non-fiction that isn't academic. So in terms of from a very small child on, I've seen um, <laughs> the lack of money that's generated by authors through doing yes. these things. Yes. That, that isn't necessarily yes. the problem. What has changed okay. uh, in recent years is... Just the interaction, the way in which these publishers actively promote books, and certainly coming into both divine action and natural selection, also nature-inspired informatics. My expectation was that I could volunteer review copies, or at least electronic copies for review, and obviously doing to live and through you know various artificial life community outreach. An aspect which probably folks listening to biota live may not immediately appreciate is that I also spend a lot of time uh, communicating with science journalists and doing things like that in terms of outside promotion the artificial life community, story correction, uh, stuff that's reported in the media that relates to the artificial life community. So I have a lot of external contacts with folks who do standard mainstream science publication, uh, New Scientist, Scientific America, this kind of stuff. So within my contact list, my anticipation was that I would be able to forward. Particularly, if we look at Divine Action, Natural Selection, that was a beautiful book in terms of just the number of authors that was brought together. The, as we've already discussed, the, the interaction, but also it really was a uh, the the, the polarisation in this whole notion of a science versus religion debate was completely obliterated by that book. Mm-hmm. The ability for that book, and I've talked to Dick Gordon about this extensively, but the ability to to put that book in the context of the kind of uh, fire brimstone media, be it Fox News, be it uh, MSNBC, the American media uh, industry, the cable television industry, would not know really how to fit this book into its narrative, but there were participants in the book who would have fitted perfectly into that narrative. So between Dick and and myself and and Joseph, there were a number of emails exchanged with the publishers. For example, it it came out around the same time as one of the uh, anti-evolution movies. I'm trying to think, with that uh, Ben Stein fellow. So he had a movie out called, oh, my mind's gone blank, but anyway, he had a movie out uh, that was getting quite a lot of press. And John Baumgartner, the fellow that I did the dialogue with, uh, his... Group, the Creation Research Institute, were uh, heavily promoting that film. This came out at exactly the same time that the book came out, and yet the publisher, for whatever reason, couldn't really get on the boat associated with doing publicity for the book associated with these things coming together. My frustration, and particularly after you know months of calling various numbers and emailing various folks, was that the publisher really wasn't interested in the kind of level of promotion that everyone who had participated in the book wanted. Mm -hmm. And I had a similar kind of experience with uh, Nature-inspired informatics, but for different reasons. Obviously, it's not quite as a political book in terms of the science versus religion uh, discussion. I guess my sense is that the passion that authors have when they participate in these kind of things can be converted into amazing promotional vehicles. But the problem with these publishing houses, particularly through consolidation, is that there are very few people left within the the, the publishers, and their ability to even manage large titles being published and work through the uh, the publicity, which I would think would go hand in hand with things being a successful book, seems to be less and less important. Yeah. So. That's, that's my experience, and certainly the feedback that I've gotten from others in the community is relatively similar. This topic was generated through a series of emails for Jeffrey Ventrella, who, like I, have gone through these kind of experiences, and Jeffrey is really a trailblazer in terms of his ability to, to see these kind of things. I'm holding in my hand prime numbers are the holes behind composite patterns, which is his first self-published work and we'll get a little bit more into self-publication but Jeffrey outlined this problem that as a passionate artificial life developer who has put their all into writing for one of these books a a chapter or even uh, a substantial amount of text the way in which they're received by modern day publishers really doesn't convey the same kind of energy that I think the you know the Stephen Levy's and uh, related Margaret Hay-Bowden's got in the early 90s so The times have changed with regards to publishing. The times have changed with regards to the artificial life community. And this comes back to the question, what modes of publishing are open to us? You mentioned blogs briefly. In the academic community, how important are blogs currently?
1: They seem to be becoming more and more common. I don't know how important they are. Like I think it it, it seems to me fairly important to have, for instance, a personal web page. Almost all professional academics have a web page that has their photo, their publications, you know, some sort of information about them. And especially for someone in my position where I'm on the job market and I I know or I hope (laughs) that people are visiting my webpage as prospective employers and checking me out. I think that's very important. Logging, uh, much less so. I think they tend to be um, people who have some sort of stake, like, for instance, it might be somebody who's involved in the Philosophy of Science Association, so they have a blog to kind of, you know, talk about that and promote that, or um, a colleague of mine who is very active in um, the feminist movement, feminist uh, philosopher, so she has a blog devoted to just that topic. So it's more like a topical thing than a personal blog. And, um, you know, I don't know how, I, I just know that they're becoming more and more common. I would say nobody had them maybe a couple of years ago, and now it's becoming more common if you have some sort of, you know, you're on some sort of board or you're, you're taking some sort of position, it's becoming more common.
0: And in terms of your book, The Metaphysics of Transformers, how was that book brought together? Was that part of a series? What, could you, can you talk a little bit about that book specifically?
1: Sure, that was a fun book. The title is Transformers and Philosophy uh, More Than Meets the Mind. And that grew out of when I had a fellowship at the Center for Inquiry in Amherst, New York. My colleague and direct report, John Shook, who is a philosopher, he's the VP of Academic Research at the Center for Inquiry, uh, he knew of this series, and it's open court out of Keras Publishing. They did, I think it was called Pop Culture and Philosophy. So a lot of those books that you see, you know, the, the Simpsons in philosophy and Bob Dylan in philosophy and all of those, it's in that same type of series where it's pop culture and philosophy. And just knowing of my interest in artificial life, he asked me to co-edit the book with him. And that was a lot of fun. We kind of did it in fits and starts over an entire year, I would say, collecting essays. And then I, I was thinking when you were talking about how the nature of publishing has changed, I was kind of surprised once the book was published, that Open Court came to us and said, okay, so now go to your local Borders and, and um, Barnes and & Nobles and set up some book signings so that you can promote your own book. And I thought, oh, I didn't realize that's how it worked. <laughs> I thought that publishers would want to sell their book, and so they do the promoting, but it was really kind of up to us. So John Shook, who lives in Buffalo, did some book signings up there, and I did some book signings out here in Boulder County. And, you know, we, we have yet to find out whether that, helped book sales or not we haven't seen any royalties yet and I have no idea how that book is selling but it was kind of interesting that a lot of the advertising was kind of put on us so as soon as I did get a web page up I have a picture of the book and I talk a little bit about it to get the word out there because I'm not sure which isn't to say that they're not doing their advertising part I just don't know whether they're doing advertising or not so the, the ball did kind of fall on our court as far as getting the word out about that book
0: well, the book launch has always been a traditional publishing method. In fact, I think it's wonderful. I mean, my, my childhood was spent at book launches uh, for both my parents and also their, their related publishing friends. And I think the the experience of the book launch was one that I wanted to replicate. I mean, here in Las Vegas, we actually have quite a substantial uh, atheist community. We have Penn and Teller. Uh, we have a wide variety of folk who are actively part of the Uh, general uh, atheist science dialogue. And the ability to do a book launch in Las Vegas for Divine Action, Natural Selection, as I put to uh, the publishers on, on multiple occasions, would have been a really wonderful opportunity to introduce these folk into the artificial life community and also get them involved with regards to the active promotion of this kind of book. Certainly, my parents' experiences was that doing book launches was... Is much part introducing yourself to the local media and various other local entities. And I, ironically, when I was in Australia with, with Noble Ape, I would do CD-ROM launches and version launches and things in order to promote through a similar kind of mechanism as had been shown to me with, with uh, traditional publishing, with my parents' experience with traditional publishing. So I would, I would... I mean, obviously, the publisher you went with there used quite a traditional, but I think quite a robust model associated with how to promote these... Uh, these books. And my frustration is that more publishers aren't actually using these kind of models uh, in their uh, promotion. Let's move a little bit uh, into the the idea of self-publishing, the stuff that Jeffrey and I have been discussing, and the notion that historically, I mean, within the philosophy community, there has been, I'm, I'm thinking here of Bertrand Russell specifically, there has been uh, a few philosophers that have, kind of sub self-published uh, work on occasion and they're still well understood and well received. do you see, do you see the self-publishing aspect as being somewhat tainted? What, what's your own thinking with regards to self-publishing?
1: I think that you know I have since we last talked, I have looked at Lulu.com and some of, some of the other sites that offer self-publishing services. And I think that the advantages are clear, that it's very easy. There's kind of no middleman. You can just, you know, upload whatever you want, and they take care of all the production and all the production costs. And it makes the whole process much more efficient. And then, of course, the finished product being sold on Amazon uh, is much more affordable than if you went through a big-time publisher. So I think the advantages are clear. But one thing you hear a lot amongst academic philosophers is you know, it's like, like any field, it's becoming so much more competitive that it's not good enough, of course, to just have papers published. Now you have to have a book published. But then the question is, well, which publisher did publish the book? You know, is it Oxford, is it Chicago University Press, or is it some unknown publisher? And that really actually does matter in terms of, um, say, promotion or going up for tenure or trying to get, a full-time tenure-track job. So it's not just, have you published three books? Now it's, who, with, with which publisher did you publish those books? So I think, um, you know, if you asked somebody who cared about such things, they would say, well, self, self-publishing doesn't count as much, or, you know, it's not as valuable, or something like that. But I think it depends on what your, you know, what your ultimate goal is. Because, you, you know, there, there may, it may be very difficult. I know before I teamed up with Joseph Seckbach and Dick Gordon on this origins book, I did pitch a very similar idea to a few uh, publishers, not Springer, but sort of the more traditional publishers who publish philosophy books. And I got all those, you know, because the origins of mind, origins of life, what? You know, it's, it's cross-disciplinary. They didn't know what I was talking about, or <laughs> it just sounds so strange. So, across the board, um, the idea was rejected. And so, you know, it, it took something like Joseph Seckbach, who has this series, this origin series with Springer already, um, to make it, to make the idea actually go. So, um, you know, it just it depends on the end goal. I think if you have an interesting book to put together that's non traditional and that traditional publishing houses are not going to pick up and run with, then it's a great alternative but I definitely think that in this sort of harsh academic world, um, you know, one book with Oxford University Press could count more than 10 self-published books. You know what I mean?
0: Certainly. Certainly. I mean, my sense is it's a a kind of self... What you're describing here is is a tennis match. On one side, you have conservative academic publishers, and on the other side, you have conservative academics. And the interesting question is is this actually moving any the, the idea that interdisciplinary is in fact a challenge. It seems to me to be why I really enjoy being part of the artificial life community because we're, <laughs> we're, we're the bastard child of so many disciplines that we are fundamentally interdisciplinary and then are immediately tarnished with this brush. It does seem to be quite paradoxical how you actually inject new insight into this, uh, into this equation. Maybe self-publishing is exactly what is necessary. Another point that is yeah. interesting is that I think the the academic community, particularly associated with artificial life, is increasingly looking for things like what we are doing with BioTalive. I had the opportunity to chat with you and Mark Badeau embarrassingly now about a month ago on the first... Uh, uh, international Society uh, podcast, Artificial Life podcast, and certainly I see there are aspects of academia, perhaps the, the same tarnished few uh, in the artificial life community, that are looking for independent methods such as podcasting as a means of getting information out. But I think in terms of self publishing, there are ways to get the best of both worlds, and I wanted to talk a little bit here about the methods that folks who are interested in self-publishing can use in order to uh, maybe have some kind of community review or some way where it wouldn't be perhaps the same as formal peer review, perhaps not necessarily. Um, well, obviously, if you're self-publishing a work, basically, at the end of the day, you can, you can tell the other folk that have re- reviewed the work that their opinions are, are immaterial to the work actually getting published. But there is a notion that you can develop groups of uh, reviewers, editors, uh, similar peers who could give critical uh, and constructive feedback. And certainly with my mother's experience, she was part of a writer's group um, in Australia. And the writer's group maintained for about 15 years. There were seven authors who published in in different areas, all, all women. And they worked on a monthly basis. They would workshop each uh, author's book, they were going back through traditional publishers. I mean, once the books had been workshopped and, and rewritten, they were then sent on through traditional agents to traditional publishers, and many of them were published through that process. But this idea of almost like a, a writer's workshop, I think could be really beneficial to the artificial life community to make sure, not necessarily that we were peer-reviewing or being critical or pushing Uh, people in particular directions, but just to give the kind of initial feedback, is this something that would be interesting and useful to undergraduate students? Is this something which is inspirational? Is this something which fits in to a specific uh, intellectual discipline? I mean, I think Mm -hmm. we have such a diverse community that the potential for folks who are interested in self-publishing to either self-assemble one of these groups or for the community formally to create a, a group of baby five, seven uh, individuals that would be willing to read and uh, give give editorial or critical peer feedback, I think that's that's perfectly doable. Are you familiar with these kind of uh, these kind of methods, Liz?
1: I'm not personally, but um, that is something that I would be happy to do because um, having worked for the Philosophy Science Journal for a few years as its assistant editor. I definitely like the idea of having sort of an informal group where papers can be sent out because that's kind of what I was wondering is if, you know, self-publishing, you don't want to just have anyone writing anything, nobody else looks at it and it's bound and called published because that would obviously devalue the whole idea of having a published book. But I would be happy to be part of a group of people who, you know, and, and, of course, this would be cross-disciplinary because while I, I would feel comfortable, say, looking at the writing part and, you know, is it clear and is the idea expressed, you know, kind of like my philosophical skills could be helpful there. But the artificial life community, we would have to have people from that community, too, who are looking at more of the technical details and is this right and is it accurate and, and yes, this is, in fact, what happens or doesn't happen. So if we had an informal group of people working together, and now, of course, um, you know, given technology that we have now, it's probably much easier for people in different geographical locations to communicate this way than it was even for your mother, however long ago that was. You know, technology's gotten so much easier to work across distances that I think something like that could really work. And... It's just going to take maybe one book or maybe a couple of books that are really fine products, that are, you know, well-written and they've been professionally edited, and once people see, oh, okay, this is a self-published book, and nevertheless, it's still really high quality, it could begin to turn the reputation or maybe the view of what professors, what academics might think about self-published books. So you know, it, it could happen over time. I think
0: a, a sort of a sea change in what that would mean. Certainly, and I think your ratio, as you described, you know, one one Oxford University Press versus ten self-published works. Well, if the information in the self-published work was ten times more interesting, more philosophically sticky, more, then that would also filter back into the equation. I mean, I think this is this is what's fascinating. I've, I've read through Jeffrey's. Uh, I'm going to be sending him back some feedback. But I think as a community, we can do this kind of thing in not necessarily a formalized sense, but certainly something that will create a series of these books that will be uh, really inspirational. I mean, from my personal perspective, I'm not talking so much about academic publishing per se. My feeling is that the artificial life community has moved in so many different directions even a a basic surveying is is difficult currently and certainly things like wikipedia are not even relevant they're not they're worse than useless currently in terms of the lack of information i i feel sad to say even maintaining the biota website it's difficult to maintain that to a level with regards to what's currently going on so i think there, there are two directions here which are fundamentally almost the same direction. The first is if someone like Jeffrey Ventrella was to do a, a brain dump associated with stuff that he had done in uh, Darwin Pool, Gene Pond, I think I've got those around, Gene Paul, Darwin Pond, and also potentially the interaction that he's had with regards to the Avatar community, uh, artificial life interactions with the Avatar community, these kind of things, even as um, almost a kind of historical reflection, would be relatively interesting books and cross over a, a number of disciplines in terms of their potential impact. what I find yeah. doing software engineering is that there is very little uh, active insight. There is a documentary that PBS made in the late '90s associated with moving Netscape uh, into the Mozilla moving moving the Netscape web browser into mozilla and and although it's a, it's a television documentary, that is one of the few actual descriptions of productive open-source movement that I have ever seen. So within software engineering as a discipline, there's very little of this uh, kind of historical reflection or self-analysis. There's a whole lot of kind of management speak and hype, but... The level of detail that that documentary went into, I think the artificial life community has the ability, ironically now it's available via uh, Google Video as well. So folks um, who are interested uh, in, let me think, I can't think of the title, come to me. But anyway, so that is available um, online. But the, the ability for, for folks such as Steve Grant to do Uh, a book about his development with creatures. A level of detail, I interviewed Steve Grand initially on creatures over a series of 45-minute, three 45-minute interviews. And the thing that fascinated me with that development was the amount of stuff that existed in the public domain. There were a lot of papers that were written and some insight, and also the uh, developer community, the folks that had actually worked at CyberLife, have an active wiki that they maintain with their own stories. This kind of information, I think, is really critical. It's not just with regards to a few uh, artificial life developers. This is really also my concern with Marcin Kaminsky's artificial life applications and software is that 5,000 words just doesn't really cover it. It really needs almost 60,000 words or 100,000 words to really get into the detail. Now... Would this be inspirational? This is the other group. One is uh, describing the history and some greater understanding. And this here would have to be done with individual projects before it could be done as a kind of group history. I think the problem really up until now is that authors that haven't been adept or don't understand the real depth of the artificial life community or the many kind of breakaway elements of it have come to a surveying in terms of... Probably you know five or six top projects, whereas it's actually thirty or so projects, and in they're interrelationship, which makes it interesting. But what is really needed now? We've got kind of the old, the past, the history, is the future, and the aspect in terms of uh, artificial life books. Here we're talking about paper books, potentially electronic books, but probably paper books initially. In terms of inspiring a new generation, I think it's really the, the thing that the artificial life community should be focused on, particularly in the, the current times, the kind of artificial life winter period that we appear to be in. This is a wonderful time for folks to uh, both develop their own projects and also start thinking in these terms, in terms of creating, um, well, perhaps project uh, analysis histories, perhaps descriptions of a variety of projects that they haven't had the opportunity to do. When I talked to Bruce Damer in the initial parts of his visions of the EvoGrid tour, there were probably about 30 or 40 uh, of the uh, folks he met with uh, in a wide variety of areas that had their own particular take on what the EvoGrid would look like. Each of those snapshots coming from different areas, be it Howard Bloom, uh, be it uh, various folks at NASA, uh, folks he met with um, in Los Angeles and also on the East Coast. Each of those perspectives would be a unique artificial life project. And the ability to have almost like a, a scrapbook of here are 60 ideas that are yet to be explored in the field of artificial life, have at them. I think that would be an an interesting book, too. So from my perspective, looking at the artificial life community, I see, firstly, there is very little written history, and I think that's just a function of software engineering in part, but also what is there doesn't give the kind of breadth that will lead to inspired new minds coming to the artificial life community and kind of continuing on aspects of the legacy. Similarly, I think there are a number of ideas that come up that the artificial life community, as it is stretched, can't do with, can't work on currently, but still are interesting questions for the future. So, th- these are the two aspects. As you view the artificial life community as a philosopher, Liz, what other aspects, what other benefits can you see through this kind of publication currently?
1: Um, through self-publishing,
0: do you mean? Well, yeah, self-publishing or, or any kind of traditional paper publishing.
1: Well, um one thing I wanted to mention when you were talking about the uh, sort of a, a scrapbook or a history, the a paper that Steve Grand and I will hopefully write together for the origins of design book is tentatively titled historical motivations of artificial life. So hopefully, you know, and of course he has vast experience writing on different aspects of artificial life, as you know. And so hopefully we'll get into some of the, you know, the highlights of, the History of Artificial Life. So something like that would be a nice chronicle of what's happened in Artificial Life. But I think um, as far as the, the self-publishing, you know, going forward, the future of Artificial Life, as far as the self-publishing option, I really like it. And I think that, of course, the self-published book can have content that's just as good, if not better, than, you know... the published books. Of course, there are a lot of crummy published books out there (laughs) and published sometimes by good publishing houses. So that doesn't necessarily mean anything. I think my point was just that there might be amongst academics, and of course, that's only one facet of the audience that we would be trying to reach about what's going on in the artificial life community. There might be a sort of stigma of, oh, well, it's not a traditional publishing house or, oh, it's not peer reviewed. But I think that that is a stigma that would erode in time, especially with some really good products coming out. And so if, you know, and I'll just put this out there, that if you or somebody in the a community were to put together a book uh, like that, I would be happy to be on the, you know, unofficial editorial board where, if you, you know, as somebody who would proofread these papers and make suggestions and, uh, you know, just look for readability and clarity and those sorts of things, um, I would be happy to be involved in a project like that.
0: Wonderful, wonderful. And in terms of the history of artificial life, I mean, I guess this this problem was something that you found, you've worked with the folks at Avida specifically, but in terms of your surveying of the artificial life community, your modern surveying of the artificial life community, you found this problem as well that there was the resources that were there were not organized in a fashion that would be useful to you as a philosopher.
1: Uh, that's true, and I haven't I haven't at all worked with the Avida community, just to be clear. But I I have read some of their publications, and I drew on that research in a recent publication of mine about artificial life. But I think that that's true. It is it is rather difficult. A lot of the philosophers of science I know, um, maybe because of my influence, but oh, a lot of the philosophers I know know something about artificial life. And, in fact, Michael Dixon at USC, philosopher of physics, was the one who introduced me to Avida. So I was looking at more of the older, um, you know, Christopher Langton and Craig Reynolds, Tom Ray type stuff for a paper I was putting together, and he was the one who uh, made me aware of Avita, what was going on at the time, what was going on uh, just then. This was a few years ago in more contemporary research. But I think that's true. For an academic who wants to know, hey, what's going on in the field, the resources are pretty disparate. I mean, you have to go to the conference proceedings in the library or maybe come across the few academic papers that have been published on the topic. You You do have to kind of work hard. And, of course, some of those books you mentioned, Stephen Levy, um, I also read um, silicon second nature and i 'm forgetting the author's name, but you know there were, there were a couple of popular type science books out there, but I think you're right it would be r- a really nice project to bring a lot of those insights together in one resource that would be excellent
0: yes and in the forgotten titles, Code Rush is the name of the documentary associated with moving Netscape to Mozilla, and certainly i've recommended it to a number of folks in the artificial life community as well. Well, Liz, I understand that you have a beautiful view in front of you that you no doubt want to explore, and it's been wonderful to have the opportunity uh, to chat with you today on this topic. As as I understand, we're both probably bibliophiles and also passionately interested in seeing these things uh, come out in in a broader community. So thank you once again for the chance to chat today.
1: Oh, thank you so much, and best of luck with your talks at Stanford next week.
0: Uh, it's not next week. It's actually in July, as these things turn
1: out. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I, I have a
0: long lead in time, but I've got to warn a lot of people in advance. Uh, no, I'm really looking forward to it.
1: next <laughs>
0: Yes, it, it feels like next week for me as well. There's a lot that has to be done. But anyway, wonderful as always, Liz, talking with you. I'll talk to you soon. Take care.
1: Okay, thanks, Tom. Bye-bye.
0: And for folks listening in, the next podcast will be recorded May 1st, probably around the same time, which is 3 p.m. Pacific. We may move back to the Friday 8 p.m. Pacific times as well. If folks are listening in who would like to participate, if they're listening to the podcast specifically and would like to uh, offer a time which is more convenient for them to call in and participate. I had actually attempted to record this topic last week, and we had a fellow on from the UK briefly. So through using TalkShoe, a number of folks are getting involved with regards to biolive too. So we may have a a diverging group of uh, participants in the future. Anyway, thank you very much for listening in. If you'd like to get in contact with me, if you have uh, book topics or ideas that you're interested in this self-publishing vein, please contact me directly, tom at noble8.com, or alternatively, as I noted at the start of the podcast, The Biota Conversations mailing list and also the Biota community on Facebook are two places that we can continue the discussion. Anyway, thank you very much for listening in.